Father, again, we thank you that as you've worked in our hearts that we indeed hunger for you, that you're changing our desires, you're changing our goals. Lord, you're even working on those idols that are in our hearts and you're exposing those. We thank you for that. Father, again, we thank you for your plan of redemption, for your calling us. Remind us, Lord, that as we approach your table, that we stand before you in Christ's righteousness. Lord, we may have had either a very bad week or perhaps a very good week walking with you, and yet our standing before you remind us over and over again it's not based on our performance, it's based on what Christ did for us. Lord, we ask that you would search our hearts. Lord, you know what's in it, but our hearts often deceive us. And as we come before the table, we want to come with pure hearts, with obedient hearts. We want to judge the things that are there so that you will not have to do that in a harsh way towards us. And yet you have to search them and reveal what's in there. Convict our hearts. Help us to be teachable. As we look at this passage, help us to see if indeed we have humility, if indeed we do have patience and gentleness and meekness. We truly bear with one another, and if there's truly unity in our hearts towards one another. And if there's areas that need to be changed, I ask that you would convict us in those areas and that we would be very quick to repent and turn from that direction so that we might walk with you effectively. Again, we thank you for your word that it continues to cleanse us. Thank you for your spirit that continues to enlighten our minds. And we ask that, again, that we would truly be uh, pleasing to you in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. This last week... Uh, Usually it's easy for me to know what I'm going to be speaking on because it's the next verse. (laughs) But we're kind of in a transition. Let me just say that in the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the book of Daniel. Uh, Ultimately, ultimately we're going to be looking at Daniel for maybe 10 or 12 weeks. Um, We're not going to do a thorough study. The purpose is just to kind of get an overview. Um, but then, uh, then go probably to the Olivet Discord, Matthew, Matthew 24 and 25, and then ultimately end up in Revelation. Now again, we won't go bang, bang, bang. We'll probably have some, some other messages periodically uh, in between. But I say that because if you want to start reading those passages, especially starting with the book of Daniel, we've already looked at Daniel 1, uh, but Daniel 2, and then again, there's a lot of prophecy in there. I want to make sure that it, as we go to prophecy that it edifies us. So I don't want to get so involved in prophecy that, yeah, you know what the, the ten horns are or you know who the Antichrist is, maybe not the person, but what he you know, looks like in Scripture. But it's not edifying to you. It's not building you up. It's not challenging you as far as to walk in the Christian life. So we have to make sure we do both. But anyways, this, this, this week, since it's communion, since we have Ken and Felicia here, I, I thought, well, we would just look at a passage of Scripture kind of pertaining to uh, what are we looking for in an associate. But it, it kind of reminded me, because I, I had a hard time grabbing a hold of what passage to look at. Uh, it was kind of like as when, when we used to, uh, when we uh, 
bought our home that was at the bottom of the hill. I remember it kind of went like this. We looked at the, uh, the light fixture and said, you know, we needed to f- change this light fixture. And so, you know, get up there, take the nuts off the thing, and then, oh, man, look at the wiring. It's not even the new wiring. You know, it's maybe, I, I forget some of it, I think it might even have been aluminum, you know, so the old Romex. Oh, we need to change the wiring. I don't want to just replace the fixture. Well, you know, let's take the... Oh. Well, now the ceiling is a mess. So now we're going to have to not only change the fixture and the wiring, because the wiring goes over to here, so it goes through the ceiling there. And uh, so now, all right, so, so we're going to have to do the light fixture, the ceiling, and the wiring. Well, because the wiring went down the wall, you know what? It's going to interfere with the cabinets. And you know those cabinets aren't that good anyways. So let's better do the cabinets as well. And, uh, well, since you're doing the cabinets, you know, you've got to do the upper cabinets and the lower cabinets. And since you're doing the cabinets and then you're pulling, you know, let's do the wallboard behind there. Well, if you're going to do that, you might as well replace the countertop because you've already, you know, figured out the cabinets. And if you're going to do that, you might as well do the faucets. And if you're going to do the faucets, you better do the, the uh, well, the sink, yeah. And then, uh, you know, then you got the, you know, let's go from the old steel water pipes to the, you know, at least. What, now it's a peck, is it called? We used to be copper, you know. So, let, well, and after, since we're doing all of that, we might as well replace the floor. But before we do that, let's put Luan down because you can't put, you know, the good floor over the bad subflooring. We started with the fixture and I ended with the carpet, I mean, the, uh, the flooring. How did that happen? I felt like this. We just kept changing them before long. The entire thing was, was uh, being replaced. Maybe that was her intent in the first place. <laughs> when I came to Ephesians, though, I felt like I was doing that. I... I wanted to preach on Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. And if you're there, Ephesians 4, you can follow along. We're going to be in Ephesians 4 today. And I, because it, it really gives us the actual um, the, uh, philosophy of ministry that we own at this church. And that is that Jesus Christ himself, verse 11, he himself, that's Christ, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now again, pastors, why would you hire another pastor? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry. In other words, to equip others, not just himself, to do the work of ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. And I thought, man, that's the passage. And at the beginning of the week, that was the passage I was going to plan on. But then I started like pulling this wire. (laughs) And I thought, well, yeah, they've heard a lot about that. Well, let's maybe think about verses 13 to 16, because this is what happens when you get a pastor who is able to equip, and we all use our giftedness, verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith. That's great. That's huge. We all come to the unity. Now, catch that word unity. We're going to end with that today. Of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature and fullness of Christ. Okay, so if we are able to do what the passage says. God, Christ, gifts men to equip so we all serve. By the way, one of the ways you grow as a Christian is by serving. Do you realize that? Don't just think that, oh, I come, I listen, I soak in. Uh, No, you need to use that. It's the stretching of service that really produces great character in a person's life. 
Again, you need information, you need doctrine, you need theology, but it's using that theology in the body of Christ that, that develops your character. So I thought, man, that's a great passage. Look at verse 14. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro. And if there's anything that characterizes the American church, is that there's a lot of kids out there. And I don't mean age-wise. I mean in their maturity in Christ. They're just children being tossed to and fro, and they'll pick up on anything that happens to be out at the new fad. So I thought that would so we don't want to be carried to and fro, but again, we go back to those who teach can make a solid. And then I thought, well, look at verse 15. Speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ, from whom all the body join and fit together. And, and basically look at the very end. Does it share, uh, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And man, we want to have a strong body, not just a body of believers, a strong body of believers. And that happens when Gifted men, given by Christ, equipped saints, and we all serve each other, and the body is built up. And I kept pulling this, and I thought, well, that's the passage. But then I thought, well, yeah, but they've heard that too, and we know what's important. Well, let's go before that. In verse 7, it says, To every, to each one of us, grace is, was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And what he gets there is actually that we're all gifted. We're all Different because we all have a different gift. And as we looked at Romans 12 a number of weeks ago, you know, Christ gives us a gift so that we might be part of the body, that nobody could be like excluded and say, ah, you're not important. We all have a very unique gift, but it's different. But then I thought, well, let's go even farther. I'm following this line, you know, I'm just kind of working my way backwards from the passage. And I thought, you know, but look at the unity that's there in verse 4. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope and of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And then I thought, well, let's just go to chapter 4, verse (laughs) 1. And that's really the passage we're going to be in. Because this is how it plays out. With Paul, there's a major transition from chapter 3 to chapter 4. He has just been talking about theology in chapters 1 through 3. He's talking about uh, doctrine, who you are in Christ, the glorious truths of the gospel and how we relate to Christ through the gospel, through his sacrifice on the cross. And in chapter 4, he makes a transition and he says, based on your doctrine and your theology, this is how you should walk. This is how you should behave. And that's verses 1 to 3. And then he says this, and if you behave this way, if you think this way, if if these characteristics, these five characteristics are in your life, then you're going to be proclaiming, verse 4, the unity that's really there. In other words, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's unity right there. When we come before the table, we are proclaiming that we are walking with Christ, walking with each other, we're unified. If we have the characteristics found in verses 1 to 3, we're going to proclaim unity, but also verse 7, we are different, but verse 11, we will submit to those in authority over us, because if we all work together as a body, we're built up. You see the, the flow here? But it's all based on, see, when I first came, I just started preaching on verse 11. 
That's not the beginning of here. There's a transition. He's been talking about theology, chapters 1 through 3. Chapter 4, he starts talking about the practicality of living out that theology. But he says, if you have these characteristics, then you will use your giftedness. Then you will be unified. Then you will be built up. If you don't have these characteristics, what you'll find is you'll have a very intelligent, divided body. You'll have fractions and factions within the body because you don't have these five characteristics. So let's look at these. <clears throat> Starting in verse 1. I therefore, in fact, let me just read the three, uh, three verses. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's just go back, and there's a couple fill-ins for you. It's called the worthy walk. That's what this passage is really referring to, these first three verses. It's, the first is the call to the worthy walk. The call. He says, I beseech you, I, I therefore the prison of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy. That word walk really is it's, it's in the punctiliar, which means the day by day by day by day by day walk with the Lord. He's getting away from this idea that you make a decision and now from this point on it's easy living. He would say, no, life is a war and you have to make day by day, moment by moment decision that you're going to walk worthy. Point. You can walk worthy right now. Praise God. Wasn't that beautiful singing? I love just worshiping the Lord. And then by 2 o'clock this afternoon, you could be thinking, saying, doing the wrong thing. That's not moment by moment. In other words, there's a consistency here he's talking about. When we talk about walking, walking in the Spirit, there's a consistency. How's your life of consistency? Is it up and down? But then he says this, walk worthy. Walk worthy. If, if you put up that one, balance, balance scales. The reason I bring this up is that word worthy, the root of that means this. What is on one side of the scale should be equal in weight to what's on the other side. Okay? Now again, when it comes to salvation, we're not talking about good outweighing the bad, right? We are saved because of the grace of God. For by grace are you saved through faith, right? And Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. We come to the table to proclaim that we are trusting only in Jesus Christ and his salvation, right? He's the only Savior, and we only trust in him. But when it comes to our life, he's saying, listen, and again, remember the transition. He's just been talking about a lot of theology in, in chapters 1 through 2 3, okay? In fact, leave that up there, Code, if you want. But if you go to chapter 1, just for a, just for a, just a smidget, look at verse 3. This is the second part of verse 3. One, three. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In Christ. And then he tells us that we've been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. In fact, an interesting little thing to do is through Ephesians. Just write up, underline all the times that it says in him, in Christ. Look at uh, verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have Redemption. It, through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of his grace. And you can go on and on and on. All the rich blessings that we have in Christ, not because we've earned it, but in Christ. 
Now that's all of chapters 1 through 3. In Christ. All the blessings in Christ. And now Paul says, I want you to walk worthy. Because you have these blessings, because you know these truths, because you have been guaranteed these truths of like forgiveness and redemption, inheritance in Christ. Walk worthy. Walk in a balanced way. That your doctrine will be shown through your practice. Okay? In other words, your doctrine reflects your life and your walk. Your position should equal your practice. Do you know of any Christians whose position doesn't... I mean, they're true Christians, but their position does not reflect their practice? They're irritable, they're angry, they're frustrated, they're lustful, they're hurtful, they're vengeful. Paul says, listen, you want to have a worthy walk, make sure your position matches your practice. Not perfection... We're all imperfect. But hopefully when you sin, God, you know, hits your heart. and Oh, I need to change direction. Just this last day, something was brought to my attention through the Spirit. Not anybody telling me. That, wait, I need to change directions in that. So again, Paul is saying, I want you to walk worthy. I want the chapters 1 through 3 that are in your life, if you're a true Christian, to match your practice. In other words, not only that, but your doctrine, not only your position, but your doctrine should match your practice. This word worthy has the idea just of um, corresponding, corresponding, that they should look the same. You don't want to have just, uh, just doctrine. If you just have doctrine and teaching, if you just know a lot, but it doesn't, if, if it's not reflected in your life with humility, what is that? What do we call that? a Pharisee, a legalist, a hypocrite. By the way, you can have maybe not very deep in your doctrine, but you, you, know, you look good, but it's not based on doctrine. You know what? Then you're, you're going to start working off a of feeling if you feel like doing that. Okay? So you want to have a balance. You can shut that off. Code. Again, you don't want to be imbalanced. And then he gets into the characteristics. He says, okay, I want you to walk worthy. You're a prisoner. In fact, he calls himself a prisoner. He says, listen, I'm captive by Christ. He's the one that bought me. I'm no longer my own. I've been bought with a price. And I've been called. It wasn't that I got smart. I was saved in, uh, I believe, July 21st, 1975. 13 years old, under a pine tree at camp. Was I saved then? I'm not sure, because then I made a number of confessions after that. But the point is, is this. God opened my eyes. I didn't open them for me, right? I didn't open my eyes. God opened them. I was called. I was brought to Christ. And if that's the case, if I'm a prisoner and if I've been called, then I need to see these five characteristics in my life. Let me give them to you. B, the characteristics, that's the fill-in. The first one is this, humility. Humility, or the word is lowliness. I think the New American says humility. The literal meaning means this, to think with lowness. Now, <laughs> now think about how contrary that is to our culture. You know, we have these whole movements that say, oh, you've got to have higher self-esteem. The Bible doesn't say... The, actually, the Bible is very clear that we think plenty good of ourselves. The problem is we think too high of ourselves. In fact, we think so high of ourselves that when other people don't think that high of us, we get depressed. 
In fact, if you don't think that high of me, and I really go to the umpth degree, I'll even kill myself for it. The Bible is very clear that we are to love our neighbors as our... Well, wait. You, you mean I already love myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really do. And I know I can get into... Conf- I mean, uh, we can have a conversation. Some of you would say, no, no, that's not true. There are people that have low self-esteem. Actually, if you start uh, unfolding the uh, layers of the onion they really have a love for themselves. It may not be expressed with uh, nurturing themselves, but it's that they have a love for themselves. In fact, I believe even when it comes to suicide, they had a great love for themselves. It's just that it wasn't being uh, appreciated by those around them. See, we have to be careful because the Bible commands us to be humble, to be lowly, to think with lowness. The culture doesn't agree with that. I mean, I understand the culture in the world would not agree with that. In fact, John Wesley, hundreds of years ago, observed, quote, neither the Romans nor the Greeks had a word for humility, end quote. They didn't have a word for it. Why? Because they thought of it as being repulsive. (laughs) Humble? Why would you ever want to be humble? So they didn't even have a word for it. The very concept was foreign to their way of thinking. It was, a, it was a, as one person said, it was a pitiable weakness to be humble, to have a lowly attitude. Pitiable. Oh, you're so pitiable to think that way. It was like being a coward or shameful or reprehensible. I mean, just to be called, you're a humble person. Now again, interesting though, humility is a foundational Christian virtue, Christian character virtue. If you think of uh, the first beatitude, it says, blessed are the poor. He's talking about humble there, in spirit. In other words, humility is essential for salvation. Think about how you get saved. When we came to Christ, we had to have a humble opinion of ourselves. What? We had to believe that we were sinners, that God was holy, that God was righteous, that God was even righteous in condemning our sin and condemning us. And that... But, because God is love also, he sent his son to die for us. Not to die for himself, to die for us. And that by placing our trust in him, we could be forgiven. Brought into his family. But isn't that a humbling thing? That every part of your work, your best deeds were like filthy rags. That you had no hope, it was completely hopeless. You were completely helpless in changing that. And you had to humble yourself to receive Christ. So even the path of salvation starts with humility. We had to depend on his grace and his mercy. In fact, as we come before the table, we remember all that Jesus did for us that we could never have done for ourselves. That's humility. And we're proclaiming it. We're actually, I mean, think about what Christians do. We actually proclaim how helpless we are. We are actually proclaiming every day we walk by faith that, yes, I mean, I I can walk this Christian life only because he empowers me through his spirit. I can't do it on my own. And I'm actually, if you want to say it this way, I'm actually proud of that. I'm proclaiming, let's say it that way, proclaiming that. That's what we are all proclaiming as Christians. So humility is the first characteristic. The opposite is what? Pride, arrogance. James 4, 6 says, God resists the proud, and what? But gives grace to the humble. See, if we start getting pride in our lives, 
He resists pride. I looked up what the words proud or pride meant. In the Old Testament, the word pride or being proud meant this. Lifting oneself up in thought or action. Walking taller than everyone else, or at least trying to. Always, in fact, the New Testament meant to stretch. You know, I have to be better than the ones that are around me. Stretching one's neck. The interesting thing on pride is not only did it mean to stretch, but it also meant this, that you were blind in the process. In other words, proud people are very blind people. And you see that in our culture. You see that on the news. Think about all the news that is being presented and as you talk about the country and the world and the state of the world and the state of the country and all their solutions that you as a Christian can say, that's going to end in disaster. Why can't you see that? Because pride and arrogance against God puts the blinders on. But the thing is this, the pride and arrogance in our own lives can put the blinders on. We can start thinking that we're walking with God when we're really not. In fact, that's why in our prayer, we need to pray, Lord, open my eyes, search my heart, because as I come before the table, I don't want to come in an unworthy manner. But you know what? My heart is deceptive. Your heart is deceptive. And sometimes you're walking a different path than God wants, but you don't even see it. Lord, I need your help. I even need your help to examine my own life because it's, it's, it's sometimes very, very deceptive what my heart wants to say. So the first major characteristic is humility. Pride being the opposite. In fact, I like what one God says. Or one guy says, "Pride seeks to ungod God. Pride seeks to ungod small g, the true God." But you might say, "Well, but is it really that important to have humility?" Think of the uh, the uh, the example of Jesus Christ. It's exemplified in Philippians chapter two. He made himself of no reputation taking on the form of a bondservant, the appearance of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of a man, he what? Humbled himself. So the great characteristic in Scripture of Jesus Christ is that he humbled himself. He was a man of humility, and if we're going to follow him, we've got to be humble. The world hates that characteristic. I, uh, I think I left, I think I left a, a, a quote that I have always for the many years, loved as far as what humility is. It's in your outline there. Humility is, and this is by Andrew Murray. And you can even ask yourself, is this what's really in my life? Because this should be, if you're a humble person, this is what should be characteristic, not 100%, but this is what we should be moving towards. Humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is to expect nothing and to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me. <laughs> Are you at rest when nobody recognizes and acknowledges your service? Are you just, you know, it wasn't about me being recognized, about serving you, Lord. So it's at rest when nobody praises me and when I am blamed or despised. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go and shut the door and kneel to my Father in secret and I'm at peace as in a deep sea of calmness. Is there calmness in your life? When all around me and above is trouble, the humble person is not one who thinks humbly of himself. Now catch this. He simply does not think of himself at all. 
That's a humble person. Or let's put it this terms. How do you respond when someone criticizes you? You get defensive. Do I get irritated? Irritated? Do I get depressed? Do I shut down? <laughs> do I get paralyzed? Those are all indicators. Wait a second. There's pride in your life that... Uh-uh. No, wait. A humble person would Because for a humble person, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about him. See, sometimes we... Something happens, a trial, a circumstance. Someone says something. There's a hurtful thing said, done. And the, our response is a huge indicator of where we are on this humility level. So how do we get humility? How do we get it? I would just say this. Or as, as Philip Brooks says, the true way to be a humble person is not to stoop un, until you are smaller than yourself. It's not to try to get lower, but to stand at your real height against some higher nature, in other words, i.e. God, and that will show you what the real smallness of your greatness is. How do you get humility? You see the bigness of God. <laughs> you see the greatness of God. The more you worship, the more you study the scriptures. In fact, prophecy is a big one on this one because you see the greatness of God, his sovereignty, his love, his justice. God is great. God is big. And the bigger you see God, the smaller you see yourself. Because you're not standing low, you're standing at your true height, but God is so much greater. That's how you're humbled. Just see God. How about the second one? Gentleness. By the way, lowliness, humility, leads to gentleness. And these are going to have to be done quickly. So humility produces gentleness. Now, you may have the word meekness, some of the versions. It's don't think of meekness as weakness. Gentleness really has to do with a disposition or a gentleness of the spirit. In other words, you're self-controlled. You're not vengeful. Again, take the, the example of criticism. You're criticized. You don't try to strike out. Why? Because you're not in the focus and your disposition is, is mild, is gentle, meek. Why? Because it's not about you. It is said in the Old Testament that Moses, the leader, was a very humble man. In fact, more humble than any other man on the earth. I mean, yet he was the leader of Israel. It is said of Jesus, using both of these words, both humility and gentleness, it says this. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am a gentle. That's the root of that word. I am of a gentle and lowly in heart. Both words. See, Jesus puts it right back on himself. And listen, if you want to follow me, follow me, but understand that I am, I am lowly, and, I mean, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. See, he was very gentle. He wasn't, well, for us, he wasn't self-assertive. Oh, yeah, he proclaimed truth strongly, but it was all in the name of the Father, not for himself. Why did he clean out the temple? You've defiled what? My home? What did he say? The fathers. Okay? This is the fathers. <coughs> it wasn't about himself. He represented the father. So gentleness, again, as you have humility, you can have gentleness. And gentleness would be this. I have a strong trust in who God is. I have a trust in God's goodness and his control over every situation. 
uh, David was a gentle man. When given the opportunity at En Gedi to, to kill Saul, which from human standpoint would have been a correct thing to do, Saul was trying to kill him. He didn't. Why? He didn't take matters into his own hands. He wasn't vengeful. This is the Lord's. The Lord will take care of it. How many times do we want to take care of it? But you see the progression? As we get self out of the way with humility and think low of ourselves, in other words, it's the greatness of God we deal with, then when someone does something wrong, self is not there as the main focus. How about the third thing? Humility leads to gentleness, leads to patience, or some versions, long-suffering. Long-suffering. Macro thumia, macro big, thumia, passion. Uh, being able to sustain long-term passion. <laughs> in other words, they're not a flash in the pan. When it comes to walking with the Lord, it's not just about today, it's about their life. Macro, big. They have big passion, long-term passion. It's the same word that when it says love is patient or long-suffering in 1 Corinthians 13. And you might say, well, patient about what? I would say this, patient about God's plan, first of all. God's plan. Remember Noah? God told Noah to build a ship in the wilderness. Now think about this. Far from any body of water, because there was none, and before there was ever had been a rain on the earth. Now, how, how many of you enjoyed the rain this last week and a half? When I was gone, I heard that we got a really good rain. Did you all get good, good rain? Any hail? Today we're supposed to get hail, possibly. Hopefully not. But anyway, but back in Noah's day, they didn't even have rain. You know, the way it was water was different than today. So God tells him to build a ship in the middle of a desert when they had never seen a body of water or rain, and it took them 120 years for Noah to work on that task. And you can only imagine over that 120 years, while he's preaching about God's judgment, I'm sure there was derision and mocking from the group. But you know what? This is the point. He was patient. He was long-suffering. He continued with the task with passion. He was given a task to do, and he finished it. Jeremiah preached to my people... But they're not going to hear. In fact, you're going to preach judgment and they're going to just get angry with you. Finally, they're going to throw you in a pit. They're going to hate you. They're going to mock you. But Jeremiah, keep to the task. And he did for 40 plus years. Isaiah, send me. Isaiah, you go to the house of Israel. They're going to do the same thing. But he continued to be faithful to the Lord. Okay, what do we see in these examples? Patience. Patience with what God wanted you to do or what they wanted him to do. And and my question to you is this. What has God put on your plate that maybe you've lost patience for? Lost passion for? Maybe it's using your spiritual gift. God has gifted you. You started out really strong, but something happened. Someone criticized. Someone didn't appreciate. Something happened where you you didn't feel like it was the best situation, and you just set it aside. It's not for me. And God is still saying, no, I called you to do that. That's what I gifted you. Maybe it's a family member, and they are so irritating and so frustrating. You used to ask for prayer for that person. They've, you've just written them off. You don't even ask for prayer anymore. You don't pray for them. In fact, you're bitter and angry against them. Well, wait a second here. What has God called you to do? 
I'll tell you this. If you know something and you're not, don't. Because you're disobedient. You need to deal with that first. Because God needs to be served as Lord, right? So patient. It could either be for God's plan or, again, for God's people. Or maybe let's just say people in general. Aristotle used to say this. Talking about... This is the Greek virtue. Refusal to tolerate any insult and, and a readiness to strike back. That's how the world thinks, just like Aristotle said. You know, strike back. And yet here it says patient. It should be more like Stephen. Remember when they were throwing the rocks? This is what he said. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Oh. We're ready to... If someone just says the wrong thing. Now, we've got to be very careful. Humility leads to gentleness, leads to patience, leads to bearing with one another. Bearing. But notice, it doesn't just say bearing, it's with one another. And I think what he's done is he's gone from being patient with people to being patient within the church, one another. That's Christian. Let's be patient with one another. Same thing repeating Colossians 3. Other Christian. It's hard enough to be hurt by an unbeliever, but what if the person doing the hurt and wrong is a Christian? Oh, they're not supposed to be like that. But what does he say? He said, bear with one another, what? In agape, in love. In love. And notice, if you do that, and there's much we could say, but we won't, Then he says this, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Just keep endeavoring. Now, I don't want you to miss this. It says the word keep. In other words, the idea is this. The Holy Spirit has already developed uh, unity with, with us. When you were brought into the body of Jesus Christ, there's unity there. You see that in 1 Corinthians 12, the body concept. But we are called to exert ourselves because that's what that word... Uh, endeavoring. In other words, exert yourself. So this is really what it's saying. Endeavor to exert yourself to keep, i.e. guard. Guard what is already there. The Spirit of God places you in the body of Christ. That is exactly what we're going to be proclaiming right here. We're unified. But he wants us to, to guard what the Spirit has already started, and we need to exert ourselves in that. Because Satan and the world, and even our own flesh especially, wants to destroy that. It's very easy to not live in unity with other believers. I just want you to see the progression, though. If we're humble, it produces what? The next thing. Wait a second. Wait a second. It produces gentleness. That's the one. If you're humble, you get yourself out of the scenario, which is gentleness, which means I'm not going to strike back, which is patient with those, the plans that God has for you and the people that are in your life that are unbelievers. But then you bear with one, especially within the body, because there's still factions sometimes within the body, and that is all moving towards unity. And as you have unity, you are proclaiming verses 4 to 6, what we already are, 
One body, one spirit, one hope, one calling, one Lord, one faith. And you use your spiritual gift in this because you're humble, you want to serve, and therefore you're willing to submit, verse 11, to those that God has given as far as leaders. And as we all work together, the body is made strong. So is that where you're at? I... I had the opportunity of getting letters over the years. Sometimes they're encouraging, sometimes they're discouraging. This particular one was a real encouraging letter. Kind of. The gist of it was this. John, I don't agree with everything you, you say, and I certainly don't agree with every direction this church is going, but this is my family, talking about the church, and I'm staying. Two years later, they left the church. This is a while back. And I thought to myself, well, they might have thought they had humility, but they didn't have the patience and endeavoring to, or uh, the, the gentleness or the patience or the bearing or endeavoring. They had it, but it wasn't long. It wasn't long passion. And I would just challenge you. How do you see the body of believers? Do you come to church for yourself? Or do you come to, to church to meet other people's needs? Are we here to worship the Lord and say, Lord, change my heart? And sometimes it even feels like you're cutting it with a knife because you're showing me things that I need to change. Or is it, Lord, I'm here to serve you. I'm your bondservant. I'm your slave. Is it, we're coming, Lord, I need to be blessed or else I'm out of here. Or if these people don't do everything I want, then, you know, I'm gone. Or, Lord, it's part of being a body. It's part of being a family. And I'm here because I know that if I stick, you're going to grow me even more because I'll have to deal with issues. I'm not going to be one who runs. I'm going to deal with it because this is where you've placed me. I'm not saying you never can leave. Please don't understand. I'm not trying to get called here. All I am saying is this, that as a person sees humility and gentleness and patience and bearing and unity, keeping the unity, and as you work through issues, that's not only, it's not only the intelligence and the doctrine that's going to grow you, but you're going to be balanced and you're going to be growing in your character because God is going to be pushing you to show those, uh, those characteristics to those who are around you, called your brothers and sisters in Christ. So as we go before the Lord, if you'd like to bow your head, again, ask the Lord to search your heart. Lord, am I, humble? Am I a humble person? Lord, am I a person that has patience for others? Lord, have I dropped the ball on something that you want me to do and I need to pick that ball back up? Lord, is there any area in my life I need to change before I come before your table because I do not want to come in an unworthy manner? Ushers, if you'd like to come forward. Father, it's, it's always somewhat unnerving to 
open our hearts and our lives to the Holy Spirit to search and to reveal and to even ask for that. There are things sometimes that we don't even realize that you will reveal to us that we then have to take care of. And yet we take comfort in the fact that you already knew even before we asked. But Lord, we do want to come before you in a worthy manner. We want to partake in a worthy manner. Lord, we want to be examined so that we can run well and finish strong. And Lord, as we look at, looked at these five, as it were, building blocks for the individual, help us to see these in our lives and continue to grow in them. And now as we come before your table, uh, just remind us of those and help us to take partake knowing that it's not just about ourselves, but it's about us as a group, about a family. Help us to function as members within this local family. In Jesus' name, amen.